Welcome back, Immigrant Nation. Another week, another new episode. If you haven't already become a part of the Immigrant Nation community, I encourage you to hit the subscribe button wherever you're tuning in to this podcast. And you can also join our community by following us on social media. You can find us at An Immigrant's Life. It's also the best way to get in touch if you or someone you know is interested in being a guest on the show. Also, feel free to send an email to animmigrantslife at yahoo.com. Let's connect and share your beautiful story. And that's the biz. Now, let's talk about this week's episode. This week, we have the honor of hosting an accomplished American lawyer, but also the author of the captivating book, Becoming American. In this conversation, our guest shared his extraordinary journey from being a child of Holocaust survivors in post-war Europe to becoming a prominent lawyer and academic. Our conversation spanned crucial topics including the growing anti-Semitism in America, our guest's perspective on the current generation, and his thought-provoking op-ed piece discussing how immigrants significantly contribute to boosting the economy. I think you're ready for this insightful and thought-provoking episode, so let me cut to the chase. Without further ado, let's get into the show. Isa dalawa tatlo. Today's guest is a distinguished writer, retired attorney, and mediator. He's a man full of wisdom with style and grace. Everyone, please welcome Kerry Lowe. Thank you for having me on. Uh, I um, think that our, our discussion today is extremely timely because um, the new edition of my book just came out uh, two weeks ago. Uh, Becoming American uh, is the story of, uh, of my growing up in uh, post-war Europe mm-hmm. with parents who were Holocaust survivors. Uh, coming to the United States in my early teens, becoming a U.S. citizen, and then later getting very involved in American politics, business, culture, uh, all stuff I assume we're going to talk about today. Definitely. But first of all, before we continue, I want to say thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. You're welcome. I'm happy to be here. Of course. And I know you said your book already, but if anyone wants to buy your book or want to get in touch with you, why don't you tell the Immigrant Nation where they can reach you? Or yeah, the you book want... is available now on Amazon uh, or from Barnes & Noble or directly from the publisher, uh, Black Rose. Uh, and um, uh, I also invite people to look at my website, which is it's called kerrylowwriter.com uh, for... Uh, an introductory chapter from the book and lots of information about the contents. And also, if you want to sign up for my um, mailing list for the future, you can do it there. Excellent. I'm sure they're going to reach out to you. You don't have uh, Instagram? No, I don't. <laughs> no, TikTok? <laughs> You're not going to no, be dancing? No, I'm just on, uh, I'm on Facebook uh, mm. and I'm on um, LinkedIn. Mm. So you can find posts about my writing there. 
including other things that I've written previously. Uh, most of my writing previously uh, was actually um, uh, essays that were uh, published in various newspapers, uh, op-ed type uh, essays. Mm -hmm. um, I've been writing those for many years. I've published um, about 80 of those. Wow. And, uh, there are links to most of those on my website for anybody mm -hmm. that's interested. But those those essays uh, have to do with, uh, with politics, with um, uh, urban planning, which is the field that I worked in for many years, mm -hmm. uh, uh, cultural issues, uh, but also a few relating to immigration in particular. Wow, and that's amazing. Were you always been a writer, even when you were young? I, I have been a pretty active writer for about the last 40 years. Mm. Um, I uh, started out uh, as a high school newspaper editor. That was mm. my introduction to it. I was an avid writer in high school, but I didn't uh, publish uh, much until a few years later after I had uh, attended law school and was working in politics. Mm. Uh, I was invited to start writing um, op-ed essays for the Los Angeles Times. Mm. And uh, that grew into uh, a fairly frequent sideline for me uh, during all the years that I was practicing law and teaching and so on. That's amazing, man. You mentioned high school. Where was this high school? Uh, in the Boston area in uh, mm. Bedford, Massachusetts. Okay. You mentioned you're an immigrant. Where did you immigrate from? I was uh, originally from Austria. Okay. Um, my hometown is a small town called Braunau am Inn. Uh, which is uh, right on the German border north of Salzburg. Mm. Uh, and um, my, um, uh, my family, uh, my father was, was Austrian, was from Vienna originally. Mm. Uh, my mother was from Slovakia. Uh, and um, uh, they, as I say, were both Holocaust survivors. Mm. Uh, but um, my father... Uh, during the years after the war, uh, after both my parents had immigrated to the U.S., but then went back to Europe mm. uh, because my father was um, uh, recruited to work on the staff of the Nuremberg War Crimes Tribunal. Oh, wow. And, yeah, and so when he finished that work, uh, he went to work with um, uh, U.S. Army counterintelligence in the post-war occupation, which mm. lasted until the mid-1950s. So my parents uh, moved uh, from uh, Nuremberg in Germany to this small town of, uh, of Braunau, uh, and I was born while they lived there, uh, and um, we lived in a number of other places in Europe, but then eventually through my father's work, we immigrated to the United States in the early 1960s and have lived here ever since. Hmm. Are they still with us, your parents? No, unfortunately, hmm, they, they're talking. both deceased. Okay. Your father was a lawyer as well? No, he was an engineer by training, um, and... Uh, uh, but he spoke multiple languages, uh, and being uh, from Eastern Europe and um, uh, also of Jewish background, he was a good candidate to be a, a translator and investigator on the um, Nuremberg military tribunals. Uh, so uh, 
when he concluded that work, those same qualities made him a good candidate to work in uh, in, in the intelligence field, mm -hmm. which is what he did then the rest of his career, uh, working for different military-related intelligence agencies. Wow, that's amazing. How important was your father to you? Well, I I know he always uh, was very proud of that work and thought it was very important. And uh, I, of course, when I was a child, I didn't really know that much about it. But uh, one of the uh, interesting stories I tell in my book is uh, when we were living in Brownow and he was working with the counterintelligence corps there, uh, they would um, uh, receive uh, people who had been intercepted uh, coming out of Eastern Europe and who were thought to be potentially either uh, agents that could be sent back to Eastern Europe or people who had uh, useful information. Uh, and these could be anything from uh, former uh, German military officers to uh, just normal refugees uh, trying to get out of Eastern Europe at that time, but people who, who knew things that were of interest to the occupation forces in the years after the war. And um, so often uh, he and his colleagues would, would meet just to socialize at our home uh, there because uh, most of them were younger single men. Uh, and so they enjoyed the opportunity to, to come to our home and socialize. And they would talk about their work. And uh, it was uh, was fascinating. Even though I was a young child, I, I picked up on how um, this was really uh, uh, fascinating and secret stuff I was hearing, which they felt okay sharing in front of me because they didn't figure that a five-year-old was going to uh, uh, you know, do anything with the information that they heard. And, and of course, I didn't appreciate it other than to find it fascinating. Mm, just the stories, I guess, eh? Great stories, yeah. Did you ever repeat it to your friends? Well, that's the funny thing. I would ask my friends uh, from other families that uh, were who, whose fathers were in similar work, if uh, if they heard things like, and they none of them had any idea what I was talking about. Uh, so I had a very unique experience. In that that's regard. crazy. <laughs> How old were you when you moved away from that uh, town? Well, we first moved uh, to a larger city nearby uh, when I was about uh, six. And then when the occupation ended in 1955, um, we moved to Germany where my father went to work for Air Force Intelligence at the U.S. Air Force headquarters in Europe. And then finally, uh, when I was 13, we moved to the United States for the first time. and. Um, then, uh, then I went to high school uh, in the, the suburb of Boston and finally became a U.S. citizen when I was uh, 17, um, which there had been no particular reason to delay that. Uh, it just became an issue when um, uh, I uh, had applied for a scholarship given by the military. And I had to be a U.S. citizen to get that scholarship. And uh, so that forced the issue and at that point I became a citizen. My parents and my brother were 
had been citizens for a long time. It just, for some reason, they had never completed the process with me. <laughs> they forgot about you. Somehow, yeah. <laughs> That's funny. I was the same thing when I came here in Canada. It, I knew I was eligible to for citizenship, but I was like, just keep on pushing and pushing it. Uh-huh. No reason, no particular reason, like you said. You worked for it. You said you enlisted for the U.S. Navy? Yeah, well, that's where my scholarship came from, was from the Navy. And um, uh, it required me to uh, participate in Naval ROTC in college and then be commissioned as an officer in the Navy upon graduation. So uh, that that's what happened. I uh, served uh, for a while uh, in the Navy after getting out of college. But uh, I got injured and was discharged early and went back to, to school, to law school at that point. Uh, and um, the, then that became my primary career. Mm. Did you enjoy the Navy? Uh, no, not particularly. <laughs> I, uh, I had lived around the military uh, all through my childhood. And I actually uh, had originally intended to make a career of the Navy. But uh, my personal experiences with the Navy were not as good as I had hoped. And then when I uh, got injured and and was told I could be discharged, I accepted that opportunity and uh, then uh, didn't look back. Uh, it, it was fine. I, you know, I had some uh, great experiences and met some interesting people, uh, but I, I, lost my interest in a career in the military uh, from that limited experience. Mm. Your book, Becoming an American, a political memoir. What made you decide to write a book? I know you told me that you've been writing op-eds. Why a memoir? Yeah. um, When my daughter was uh, about nine years old, I had been thinking for a while about taking a kind of a roots trip back to Europe. And um, my my father had passed away by that time. And I wanted to do that with my mother before she got too old and uh, and perhaps died. So we planned this trip. Uh, and, um, and then, uh, sadly, my mother uh, also got very ill and passed away. And... Uh, so just my daughter and I went, uh, and just before we left, my aunt, my father's sister, who was still alive then, uh, contacted me and asked me to try to find a cemetery outside Prague where um, her and my father's great-grandparents were buried. And uh, so when my daughter and I got over there, that became this uh, search that we took on. And that became eventually the opening chapters of my book. Uh, we had a quite an adventure tracking down this cemetery, which we had no directions to. All we knew was that it was close to a certain town. Uh, and we just, we got very lucky in meeting a couple of people that were able to help us locate it because it was really hidden. Uh, You couldn't see it from any road. Uh, It was was intact. It had not been touched during the war, thankfully. And 
We got there, it was locked up. I climbed over this tall stone wall to get into it uh, and and succeeded in finding the graves. Because I wasn't even sure it was the right cemetery, but it turned out it was. I found the graves. Uh, and um, when I got home from that trip, uh, I wrote a story about it, just really for my family, for my cousins, aunts and uncles that lived in the United States. And um, uh, after that, I, uh, I wrote a couple more stories about my family. And I started to realize these were becoming a, a continuum, something that I could turn into a book. Uh, and that's how it began. Uh, so over the next couple of years, uh, uh, while I was still working, I, I didn't have time to devote myself to this full time. But I gradually pieced together uh, a, a full-length book. Then, when I um, I moved from Los Angeles to San Diego about uh, fifteen, oh, almost twenty years ago now, um, I got involved here uh, with a, a group of writers that invited me to become part of their group. And they helped me refine my manuscript a great deal, because although I was a pretty decent writer, I had never written a full-length book. And, it's different. and uh, these were all people who, um, who had published books. And so they were instrumental in helping me refine it. And um, then I ultimately found a publisher for it. And now... Uh, three years later, we've just uh, issued an expanded revised edition of, of that book. I love it. What was the hardest part of writing the book? Oh, trying not to leave out things uh, that, that were important to the story. At the same time, not putting in things that were maybe interesting to me, but not necessarily interesting to readers. And that's a hard thing in writing a memoir because one likes to think that uh, everything about one's life is interesting. <laughs> but in fact, um, an awful lot of what happens in your life is might be interesting to your children, uh, other family members, but not really to the general public. You should tell so, that to the social media people. <laughs> yeah, the, the struggle is to, uh, to identify those things that do make an interesting story for a, a broader readership uh, and to tell that story in uh, in a way that's almost like a novel. I mean, a memoir is really like a novel because you're telling a story, uh, of, in this case, about yourself, but also about other people. And that's also a, a tricky issue, uh, how much you want to say about other people now, in my case, my parents were no longer alive. Um, other uh, adults that I wrote about in the book, some were also deceased, and others, the things I wrote about them were largely complimentary. So I didn't feel like I had any concern in that regard. But it, it can be a big issue for some people writing about their families, especially uh, they open up uh, the proverbial can of worms and often find that other family members get, can get very upset over things they disclose that were assumed to be 
family secrets. Mm-hmm. You know? Was there anyone that got mad at you? I didn't feel like I had that problem because uh, none of the things I wrote about reflected badly on anyone or, or revealed anything uh, that was particularly secret. Uh, so, um, no, I I actually had a, an enjoyable time uh, writing it, but I had to go back a number of times. And as I thought of additional things, uh, and integrate them into the manuscript. And that was one of the reasons why I, I did the second edition was you know, if you've been any kind of a writer, you know how you go back and look at something you've written even days later, let alone months or years later, and you think, why did I say it that way? Or why didn't I say <laughs> more about that? Or that didn't wasn't really that important. Why did I even include that or whatever? And in my case, um, I became a better writer in the next three years. So one thing I did was go back and re-edit the book and uh, just make it a, a better uh, manuscript. But I also added uh, a few chapters, uh, things that I just hadn't thought about including originally. Uh, I'll give you a good example. Uh, in the last few years, uh, as part of my professional work, uh, I became very involved with Native American tribes. I did a lot of work with and for tribes in the San Diego region, uh, which is the, the largest concentration of tribes in the entire United States. And um, I learned so much and uh, came to understand so much about the relationship of Native Americans to American history and uh, how um, you know they were the first Americans. They were here long before anyone else. And uh, that opened my eyes a lot. And I, I served on the board of a major Native American organization for several years. And uh, that provided me material to add an entire new chapter uh, to the book that I think people will find really interesting, uh, even if they read the first version of the book. Mm. How did you end up working with the Native Americans? Well, my my wife, this is my second wife, um, uh, who was who brought me to San Diego. Uh, she she had a uh, consulting business that had done and continued to do a lot of work with tribes in this region, planning work. And um, I became involved um, with her company's uh, work because I, in a, apart from being a lawyer, I have a PhD in urban planning. So I had done a lot of planning related work and had actually uh, been involved in working not with but in connection with working uh, uh, in collaboration with a few Native American tribes in other parts of California where I had clients that had uh, land adjacent to or within Indian reservations. So anyway, when I uh, got here, uh, my wife, uh, Trish Butler, got me involved in um, uh, in some of that work that her company was doing. And I wound up writing master plans for uh, uh, 
uh, one reservation in particular and doing uh, legal work for another tribe uh, that was very extensive in connection with a major development that they were proposing to do outside their reservation. So uh, it had always been interesting to me, the, the whole culture of, of Native Americans, but I didn't get nearly as involved with it uh, mm. until I, I got here and started doing actual work with them. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Going back to your book, yes. it mentioned that you witnessed a Jim Crow racism in the South the first time you went to the United States. Yes. How did yeah. that encounter influence you understanding the American society? Yeah, it was a real shocking thing to me. You know, I had been living around um, military bases in Europe. And uh, although the U.S. military had only become fully integrated during those years of my childhood, I, I was accustomed to living around people of you know, all races and, uh, and uh, ethnicities. Um, mostly in those days, the, uh, the non-white members of the military were African-American, but there were some Hispanics, very few Asian, um, but you know, a, a, an increasing mix of all uh, ethnicities. So when we came to the United States, the first time on a visit when I was eight years old, and we went to visit relatives who uh, now lived in the South, uh, I was just stunned when I saw the segregation and uh, you know what they call the Jim Crow uh, laws and practices in effect in those days. This was uh, in the uh, mid-1950s, uh, and uh, I just had not experienced or seen anything like that before, and uh, in those days, you literally still had uh, uh, yeah, uh, water fountains and restrooms and uh, restaurants and, and hotels and then that, that either were completely segregated or they had signs on them, you know, white only or for colored. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I just, I was stunned. Mm -hmm. I, I asked my father about it and uh, he uh, was sort of apologetic um, because he had relatives that were living there and, you know, and were not um, promoting that sort of thing, but still, you know, uh, they were part of the culture that that imposed that. And he said, yeah, it's, it, it's pretty bad. It's going to change eventually. But, um, and he said, you know, it's, it's not so easy for Jewish people either here in the South that um, your relatives here have to also be very careful. They're not as they're not discriminated against in the same way that black people are, but they're also excluded from many social establishments and uh, you know, just have to be careful about not being too visible in their religious practices and so on. And, and that's, kind of stunned me too, because I hadn't encountered anti-Semitism uh, in Europe, not even in my dealings with Germans uh, in the years after the war. Now, maybe those people, the, the Austrians and Germans in Europe after the war were 
they knew better at that point than to say things that would have been construed that way. But um, nonetheless, I hadn't experienced it. And and so to hear that I might experience that in the United States, uh, th those were hard things to accept uh, because uh, what I learned in school was that uh, the United States was a place where, uh, of equal opportunity for all. That, um, and clearly, that wasn't quite the case, at least not then. Mm -hmm. But if, eventually, did you suffer anti-Semitism from someone? Yeah, thankfully, not in any um, really vicious ways. But as I got older, and maybe I just noticed it more, but uh, as as I got older, I started to occasionally hear people say things that, um, uh, you know, that were clearly uh, anti-Semitic comments. And um, they, I guess, had no idea I was Jewish, so they said them in front of me. Uh, and, you know, when you're a kid, you don't know how to react to something like that. You just tend to keep your mouth shut and just make a mental note that, that the person that said that is not someone you want to be friends with. Uh, but um, uh, I had a, a, you know, a few experiences like that uh, later on while we were still living in Germany. Um, and uh, I can't say I did uh, in, uh, in high school, but when I was in college, uh, occasionally I would hear people say things that were offensive that way you know but um yeah fortunately i never um was uh seriously disadvantaged in any way by that i was probably luckier than a lot of people in that respect mm, luckily obviously with what's happening in the middle east i mean in uh, israel uh, a lot of People have been saying that anti-Semitism has been growing again. Uh, do you agree with that, or do you think it's just the media? Well, I, I haven't personally experienced it, uh, but certainly, I, from what I read and what I see on television and so on, I mean, there seems to be a quite a resurgence of, of anti-Semitism. I mean, it's been there um, all along to a great extent. Uh, the last and in the last few years, we've seen uh, uh, the the nationalist right have a, a tremendous growth in this country and in other countries, uh, and uh, anti-Semitism comes along with that. Um, so uh, I'm not surprised that we're seeing it now, but it just it pains me more to see or hear it among people that uh, that I feel closer to politically in, in so many other respects. Uh, and I, I respect people's opinions about what's going on in the Middle East. And I'm, I, I don't, I, but I just ask people to separate uh, their views about Israel from their views about Jews generally. Uh, and some people seem to have a hard time doing that. Yeah, because it's easier to clump all people, right? Like it's easier to, like, oh, he's a Jew, so most likely he's a bad person. 
right, or something like and, that, and, you know. And that's the thing that, as I say, disappoints me when I hear things like that from people who I know know better, uh, <laughs> and and would not be saying that kind of thing were it not for what's going on there right now. Yeah. But um, but as I say, I. Um, as tragic as my family's history was in Europe, I I feel very fortunate not to have had to endure anything like that mm. myself. Yeah, for sure. Being a gentleman of a certain age, what is your view of this generation of Americans? Do you think they're getting smarter and kinder, or do you think it's just <laughs> sliding down to the beast? You know, that's an interesting question because... You hear such different stories from people who are involved with younger people in different ways. Um, if you, um, for many years, uh, I taught at the college level part time, and uh, so I had a lot of exposure to younger people, mostly graduate students, uh, sometimes upper division undergraduates, uh, and my sense is that. Um, they are uh, as smart or smarter than their predecessors, but they are not as uh, aware culturally and um, politically and historically. They, they get their information and their news from a much more limited range of sources. And as a result, they, um, they have uh, very narrow perspectives on a lot of things, uh, not necessarily bad or offensive, just narrow. And, uh, and they don't read nearly as much as prior generations. They prefer to get their information, especially their news, uh, online. And, uh, they, just won't read anything that's that they can't digest in a couple of minutes. I mean, I I found this very frustrating as a college professor uh, because it was uh, terribly difficult to get them to read uh, any significant amount, uh, even things that they really had to understand for the purposes of courses they were taking. Um, and other professors that I talked to all had the same experience. Um, and again, they, it, it, it's not that they were unintelligent uh, or or even uneducated in a in a, a, a narrower sort of sense, but um, they just didn't seem as engaged with uh, with the world around them, other than the the cultural aspects that they chose to engage with which i just think were much narrower than what my generation or even the ones in between uh would have been doing but is it their fault or it's is it the culture's fault <laughs> you know what i mean no i i don't uh see it as as the the younger people's fault uh, they've grown up in a culture that um, uh, that offers them these relatively easy uh, sound bites of information and culture. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, 
what that uh, provides them with uh, is not very detailed or in depth. Uh, and so they only get uh, a very superficial uh, amount of information about any given topic. Uh, and you have to remember too that that information they are getting has been curated by somebody who may have an agenda of their own. So whether it's um, Facebook, TikTok, or whatever, uh, somebody is putting that information out there and is making choices about what information to present and what not. And so if you're a teenager today looking for information, well, unless you want to uh, take the initiative to uh, to read a major newspaper or and listen to the evening national news on a network station. And even that has become narrower and narrower. <laughs> but, you know, unless you really make an effort, um, you're just not going to get the kind of uh, breadth of information that, uh, uh, that we were accustomed to getting. Um, I, um, I see this even in my kids who uh, are, I think more engaged than most, but yet they too, uh, they're busy. They get most of their information from uh, from these same kinds of online sources. Uh, but I try to encourage them to go beyond that and, and to an extent they do. Yeah. You know, they're going to say like, ah, dad, you're too old. No one reads the newspaper anymore. <laughs> no, when I was teaching college, I used to ask my students uh, what their information sources were. And one of the things I asked was, how many of you read a daily newspaper? Virtually zero. Uh, really. And this, it didn't matter if they were college seniors, graduate students. They had just stopped reading newspapers. Uh, it, it was... Um, not quite as bad, uh, say, 20 years ago, but 10 years ago when I started, when I resumed teaching after a 10-year break, um, that's when I was really astonished when, uh, when they told me that virtually none of them ever looked at a newspaper, and half of them said they never even looked at news online. If something, if something just fell in their lap, they might read it. Or if they were looking uh, at an interesting video and it gave them some information, sure, that was fine. But they didn't go in search of it. Yeah, that's that, that's how it is. There's so much information out there that you don't even know what to focus on. Well, that's right. It's it's uh, like uh, like a fire hose of information coming <laughs> at you all the time, uh, and it's if you're not already pretty educated it's hard to sift through it and figure out what's important what you should concentrate on that's right that's right i saw one of your articles i believe that you wrote immigrants boost the economy mm -hmm. i love that line would you like to elaborate that sure no uh, especially these days when there's so much uh uh, antagonism toward immigrants 
by people who think that immigrants just come here to get free benefits and uh, uh, you know and and take from us from the American economy instead of contributing to it. And nothing could be further from the truth. Um, maybe when people first arrive here for a brief period of time, they might need assistance in getting settled and, and getting initially integrated. But it's like it always has been. People start by joining a community of others like them that came before them. Uh, they get jobs. They start businesses. You know, there's the classic immigrant businesses of opening restaurants or uh, small shops and things. Uh, or uh, they get other kinds of jobs, especially if they're uh, relatively fluent in English. There's all kinds of job opportunities available to them. But more importantly, what we see is, and what we've always seen is, that within one generation, their children are full-fledged Americans. Their children grow up speaking English, going to English-speaking schools, playing with English-speaking children, and becoming Americanized very rapidly. Uh, now they may act as a um, as a bridge for their parents or grandparents initially, you know, and that's very common. Um, but uh, the family as a whole is going to become, in most cases, very integrated into American culture and the economy uh, and uh, and even politics. Uh, and it just um, you just have to look around and you see how true that is. And if you do even the smallest amount of reading and research on it, there are studies constantly supporting that, documenting that. The other thing that uh, that people misunderstand is, and this has been this is a, a line that's been fed to them again by a, a lot of white nationalists that immigrants. Uh, tend to be criminals, that they are smuggling drugs, that they're uh, committing crimes here at a high rate. Fact is that immigrants commit crime at a far lower rate than native-born Americans do. Um, and it's not surprising. They're trying to, to uh, get integrated in and be accepted. So sure, in any population, there's going to be some number of, of people doing bad things, but the vast, vast majority, no, they're, they're trying as hard as they can to get, uh, to become part of, of mainstream American culture. Uh, and the last thing that you would uh, expect them to do is engage in criminal uh, conduct. And, and the statistics bear that out. That uh, So now I, I think people um, really, need to look at that and, and understand that um, uh, immigrants are great contributors to the American economy uh, and to American culture in the broadest sense. You know, you look at the um, uh, at our culture going back a couple of generations, and it's remarkable um, how many how much of our culture, whether it was music, film, literature, how much of that was created by immigrants? Uh, 
especially European immigrants, but not exclusively uh, immigrants from many parts of the world. Uh, and uh, when you show people who were the people that started the movie studios? Who were the people that wrote some of the most famous songs, songs that are classic American pieces of music? There, so many of these things were uh, uh, were the product of uh, not just immigrants, but in some cases, very recent immigrants. So it's, uh, it's something people's uh, eyes and ears really should be opened up to more because right, it's uh, the information's there. Mm -hmm. Why do you think most Americans are so against immigrants or immigration? Well, I don't think most Americans are, honestly. But I think that uh, immigrants uh, make an easy target for people who uh, who are looking for a target, looking for someone to scapegoat. And so uh, it's a there's a long history in this country uh, of targeting recent immigrants and blaming them for all kinds of social ills uh, and economic ills. Uh, if, um, if the economy's in a slump, what could be easier than to say, well, that's because of those newcomers who have, who have stolen so many of the jobs. Right? Uh, and if you're uh, a working class guy with who's, out of a job or is uh, jealous of people who maybe are doing better than you are economically, it's easy to fall into the trap of believing that kind of propaganda uh, and then being drawn to these uh, uh, white nationalist causes that propagate that kind of information. Um, but it's not just in the United States. I mean, you see the same thing going on in much of Europe right now, um, in uh, just wherever uh, there are large numbers of immigrants uh, coming in. Uh, it, it's the easiest thing to blame those people for uh, a depressed economy or a shortage of jobs or um, or anything that you might not like in the in the direction the culture is going. So, but I, but I really do believe that most Americans don't take that attitude. That uh, that thankfully it's um, uh, unfortunately growing, but still relatively marginal population doing that. Mm -hmm, for sure, your book. What message or insight do you hope readers take away from your personal journey and experiences? Oh, I think the, the main insight I hope they take away is exactly what we've just been talking about, how uh, immigrants uh, are contributors to American society. Uh, I, um, near the end of the book, um, I talk about uh, looking back on my career and um, as a lawyer and being involved in real estate and, uh, and uh, having in one way or another uh, contributed professionally to uh, building something like 25,000 homes. Wow. Uh, which is twice as many uh, as, in the, as in my hometown in Austria <laughs> or the town where I went to high school in, um, in Massachusetts. 
<laughs> um, you know, in some cases, helping develop whole new communities. Uh, I've taught uh, hundreds and hundreds of college students. Uh, I've uh, written uh, and uh, uh, participated in political campaigns and, you know, I, I like to think made California and the country a better place in many respects. So I want people to read my story, not because I want them to cheer for me or tell me I've done something great, but to use my story as uh, to see how uh, how much immigrants can and do contribute to this country, uh, whether it's economically, politically, culturally, you know, in every respect. Uh, that that's the lesson that I want people to come away with, and uh, to the extent that that they do that, I, then I feel like I've uh, I've accomplished something. Beautiful, well said, well said. I think we're there. But before we close out, I want to close this with one question, if you don't mind. Sure. Can you share your perspective on what it means to be an American? Yes. Uh, I think to be an American, hopefully, ideally, is to be uh, committed to the kinds of ideals that are in the founding documents of this country. We have always lived up to them, unfortunately. Uh, and in, in some respects, they were um, narrower than they should have been. You know, women didn't get the vote until early in the 20th century. Um, we had a lot of racial injustice, even well into the middle of the uh, the 20th century, and and of course some of it continues today. So uh, I don't I don't idealize America, but I think that to be an American in the best sense is to at least believe in those principles, and to try to live your life in a way that upholds those principles. Uh, and, and I think most people agree with that. Uh, it, it it makes me sad that there's a significant and seemingly growing portion of our population that doesn't seem to respect those views. But for most people, I think that those still are uh, the views they hold. And, and that's definitely my perspective. So that, that to me is really what it means to be an American. Well said, sir. I think we're there. Again, it's been such a pleasure to have a conversation with you, Mr. Kerry. Before we close out, do you want to say your website again, where they can reach you and your book? Yes, thank you. The book is called Becoming American. Uh, it's just been released in a new second edition, uh, available uh, on Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble, uh, and from Black Rose, the publisher. Uh, or through my website, which is carrylowwriter.com. And uh, I hope that if you uh, purchase it and read it, that uh, you'll find it an interesting and compelling story. Uh, and we'll tell other people about it as well. Definitely. Again, Ms. Gary, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Have a good evening. Good evening to you too. Bye. Goodbye. Again, Kerry, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. Thank you, listeners, for listening. 
This is Aaron Deliosa for An Immigrant's Life. I'll see you guys later.